So, Paul mentioned last week um, that tonight, the second week of Advent, actually marks uh, our birthday here at Wheatland. Uh, this is our 15th birthday. I'm being asked to move over. Am I in the darkness? Is that better? Good. I'm getting some thumbs up. Um, thanks. So, uh, it's our 15th birthday uh, tonight. And I actually preached last week on our birthday as well. I don't know how it happened twice. It doesn't seem right that I'm preaching on our birthday when I haven't even been here the entire time. I've been here about half of it. Um, but I'm grateful to be, to be preaching uh, on our birthday again. I wouldn't have predicted it. And I also would not have predicted uh, that I'd be preaching to a camera and to masked figures behind the camera. I kind of feel like I'm in a ransom video a little bit. Uh, but... Um, because we're 15 years old, uh, we're a teenager now. So uh, we're going through all kinds of changes uh, in our lives, in our bodies. Um, we started driving. Uh, we get embarrassed by everything mom and dad say. Um, and we're not even thinking about college yet. Uh, but like Paul said last week, we'll probably have to celebrate the, our birthday next year when hopefully we can celebrate in person and we'll throw a big sweet 16 party. Uh, for ourselves. But I can speak for Paul and, and myself and just say thank you for being a part of Wheatland. Um, it's all the people at Wheatland that make it possible, uh, make us possible to be around for 15 years. All the many ways that we're connected to one another, but not least of which being here on Saturday nights is a huge way that we make Wheatland possible uh, as we worship together um, again, among many other things, but being here, and especially now when it's, it's especially difficult uh, through Zoom to be together, distance in here, um, we're just really grateful to be able to see you guys every week. And also because it's our birthday, uh, for our communion hymn, uh, Phil will be playing a slow, uh, prayerful, happy birthday song uh, for the communion meditation. Um, but our Advent series uh, continues tonight. Uh, if you haven't seen, you can throw up the slide, Harry. Uh, our series our, for Advent is entitled uh, Christmas Vocations. Last week, uh, we heard from Paul, and uh, he talked about the role of prophet. Oh, you're going to go backwards. There should be uh, another slide, maybe. Uh, way backwards. That's the, it, 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 what? Nothing else? All right. Well, uh, I'll just tell you, we're doing the roles of uh, prophet, priest, shepherd, and king, and how Christ fills all of those roles. And like Advent, uh, even our, our series that we chose has many layers of meaning to it. So uh, I count four or five different layers of meaning. One, we're looking at what these, role, uh, what these roles are in the, the history and the memory of Israel. Two, we're noticing how I hope we're noticing how our current world needs these roles, how we need these roles filled uh, in our world and in, in, in the church. Uh, three, we're seeing how Christ fulfills each one of these roles, of course, uh, not only with his life, but also uh, today he fills these roles. And then finally, the last thing I just wanted to point out, and this is more of a, a fun Easter egg maybe in the series, I'm not going to talk about it necessarily, but you might notice all four of these roles show up in the Christmas narrative uh, that we'll be reading, of course, around Christmas. Um, so prophet uh, shows up 
in John the Baptist in Elizabeth's womb. John the Baptist plays a huge, huge role in the apocalyptic nature of Advent, as well as Anna, uh, Simeon and Anna. Anna is named as a prophetess later after Christ is born. Uh, we see a priest in Zechariah, plays a huge role um, in the narrative. Shepherds, of course, are the unexpected, uh, unique audience uh, that are chosen for Christ's birth. And finally, King um, Herod. Uh, we have this opening to Matthew, uh, Matthew chapter 2. Herod plays this huge, huge role, and he's, he's after Christ from the very beginning, before he even knows him. Uh, so all these show up uh, in the Christmas narrative, just another cool um, level of meaning in this series. Last week, Paul talked about the vocation of prophet, and uh, if you didn't get to join us, I'll just remind you, he defined a prophet as a person who says whatever they want, as loud as they want, in the least politically appropriate way possible, and they are perfectly willing to suffer for what they say. I say that by way of reminder, but I also just really liked it and thought it was worth repeating. I think that's a really helpful uh, definition to, to a prophet. And so uh, tonight, we're going to think about uh, the vocation of priests together, uh, the history of priests in the memory of Israel and how Christ fulfills this role. But first, let's pray. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O God, our rock, our priest, and our redeemer. Amen. So all of these vocations, uh, these four vocations that we're looking at, they're all somewhat unique uh, to us here in Wichita uh, in 2020. They're a little bit foreign to us, the least of which is tonight's priest. Um, of all these vocations, it would probably be easiest for us to go out and find a priest. They, they are here. Uh, we have one with us tonight, Kyle Fleet, as Jake mentioned. Our friend was just recently priested, uh, and so he's a priest. Um, so while uh, we, could, we could go find a priest today, I would think it's safe to say that us as Protestants, if we were raised Protestant, our imaginations might be somewhat underfed uh, of what a priest does. Uh, we might not think um, that priests or the role of priest uh, is played out in our worship. And I, I want us tonight to begin by knowing that it certainly does. Uh, even if in our, in our social imagination, uh, as, as Protestants, we might not uh, think very often about priests in our worship. Uh, I want us to know uh, that it very much is a part of our worship together. It's a part of our theology. And, of course, Scripture is filled with priests. Filled. And so, uh, tonight we're going to look at this role a little bit, uh, the role of the priest. Another thing is that uh, in modern day, it's actually kind of tricky sometimes to find in, in literature or in media a good portrayal of a priest. Uh, and, and we know some reasons, and, and even if you wa watch the news, you can see reasons why this is the case. Um, some is brought upon ourselves, of course, in, in really tragic, uh, massively tragic ways. Um, I actually really am on a search to find good literature or movies or TVs that show good priests and really give it, that really embody what a priest is if you want that list of literature movies tv 
ask me after the sermon. I really do have a list of that, uh, many of which find their way into our sermons often, or they're part of our Lenten film festival that we do. Uh, a lot of them aren't going to surprise you guys, but I really do uh, keep my eyes out for portrayals of good priests because, again, as a Protestant, I think just naturally, my imagination is a little bit underfed when it comes to the role of the priest. But tonight, let's feed our imaginations first with the priestly role that we find in, in Scripture, in the memory of Israel leading up to Jesus. And so the first priest uh, that we see in Scripture shows up uh, 14 chapters into Genesis. Can anyone other than Paul, tell me uh, who that priest is. Yes, I heard it. Melchizedek. This is uh, an image of Melchizedek. He's, if you're looking at it, he's the one on your right. Um, Yes, the first priest mentioned, Genesis 14, is Melchizedek. Uh, Now, Melchizedek is a very interesting figure in the story of Genesis. I'll go, go ahead and just get my Lord of the Rings reference out of the way quick. And this... I promise you, this comes from before writing this sermon. Every time, if I'm reading Genesis, every time Melchizedek comes into the story, I've decided I think he is the Tom Bombadil of Genesis because of the role he plays. He only shows up this one time, and he plays this this small, odd, but important, you, you can tell it's important, this small, odd, important role. Now, Tom Bombadil is not in the movies, He's only in the books. So for those who have ears to hear, they will get that reference. Uh, For those who have read, they'll get that reference. And they, I hope, will appreciate how genius that uh, connection I've just made is. But um, Melchizedek is the Tom Bombadil of Genesis, maybe of the whole Old Testament. To remind us, uh, in Genesis 14, uh, all of chapter 14 follows this huge battle that occurs uh, when these four kings come, come in and they bring their armies together in an alliance and they, they attack many cities, uh, two of which include Sodom and Gomorrah. And in uh, Sodom, living in Sodom, is Abraham's nephew Lot. And in this attack, he gets uh, captured by these kings. And so Abraham rounds up some of his men and they come and they save Lot and the others that are captured there. And they, they succeed in, in saving Lot and defeating these kings. And after the battle is done, when they're all still together, they go and they're in this valley, and they're met there by the king of Sodom, the, the king of one of these, these places that was just uh, taken over. But then they're met by the king of Salem, whose name is Melchizedek. And he's named first as a king. But if you're in Genesis 14 right now, if you're following along, you'll see that He's first named as a king, but very quickly, he's also going to be named as a priest, just a couple verses later. Now, he's the king of Salem, and Salem is this city that will one day be Jerusalem, uh, where God's tabernacle will reside, and eventually the temple. And so, Melchizedek represents a tradition of priest kings. He's the first one we see, and his name will be attached to this idea of priest kings for the rest of scripture. When they're in the valley, Melchizedek brings with him bread and wine to this gathering. Probably not a coincidence, uh, even though this precedes uh, 
Christ making bread and wine a, a, a sacrament many, many, many years. I'm sure it's not a coincidence. He brings with him bread and wine, and then he gives Abraham a priestly blessing. And he blesses him uh, with these words in uh, verse 19 and 20. Blessed be Abram by God most high, creator of heaven and earth. And praise be to God most high, who delivered your enemies into your hand. And then after uh, giving Abraham this, this blessing, uh, Abraham then gives Melchizedek one-tenth of everything. Uh, that he has, um, which was the custom of supporting a priest at that time. They couldn't even own land. They couldn't really have their own possessions. And this is how they were supported. Uh, One-tenth people would would give them. I say Melchizedek is an interesting figure because not only is this the only time that we we see him, he's going to be mentioned two more times in Scripture, but this is the only time he shows up in a story. Genesis 14, that's all we get. One time that he'll show up, is uh, in Psalm 110, which is a psalm that's dedicated to King David. And actually, we'll see King David kind of bring back some of these uh, this priest-king tradition. He'll be king, but he'll do these priestly things uh, in, in the temple. And he kind of echoes back to Melchizedek. And in that psalm, it's said of David that he will be a king in the order of Melchizedek, not the order of, of Levi, which we'll get to in a, in a moment. But he'll be named in the order of uh, Melchizedek. He'll be a priest in that line. But other, other than that, Melchizedek plays this small, odd role in Abraham's story, bringing with him bread, wine, and a blessing. I just want you to make note of this first priestly function in Scripture, this man, Melchizedek, who brings with him bread, wine, and a blessing. If we fast forward a little bit, we, we see the vocation of priesthood more formalized in the book of Exodus, the next book in the Old Testament. Uh, after the golden calf incident, God laicizes the priesthood. He, he defrocks it so that only the tribe of Levi can now preside as priests. Before the Exodus, any member of any tribe could be called into the priesthood, but after Exodus, only one of the 12 tribes could be, and it's the Levites, the tribe of Levi. In Exodus 28, I want us to look at real briefly. In Exodus 28, Moses is on the mountain and he's receiving instruction from God about many, many things. And one of these things he's receiving instructions about is the priesthood, what it should look like, how it should function. And in this, priest, uh, this, this description of the priesthood, he talks a lot about Aaron, setting up Aaron and his line to be the, the Levitical priesthood. In there, he talks about the garments that he wants Aaron to wear and then all subsequent priests to wear. And I just want us to consider these garments for a moment because I actually think they tell us a lot about what priests do, the the function of a priest. So here on the screen, starting in verse 12 of, of chapter 28, it says, he's describing all these garments and one of them is this. He says, and you shall put the two stones on the shoulder pieces of the ephod as stones of memorial for the sons of Israel, and Aaron shall carry their names before the Lord on his two shoulders as a memorial. So one of these garments, and there is an image there, uh, there's going to be stones, and they are to represent uh, the people of Israel, the sons of Israel. And then it goes on to explain the breastplate of judgment that you see there hanging over his chest, above his heart. And on that is going to be 12 stones, 
each uh, engraved with the 12 tribes of Israel. And it says in verse 30, Thus Aaron shall carry the instrument of judgment for the Israelites over his heart before the Lord at all times. So a similar image to the stones on the shoulder we have on the, on the chest, the 12 tribes again representing all the people of God. He will carry with him before the Lord at all times. And then finally in, in verse 36, he says, And you shall make a frontlet of pure gold and engrave on it the seal inscription, Holy to the Lord, suspended on a cord of blue so that it may remain on the headdress. It shall remain on the front of the headdress. It shall be on Aaron's forehead that Aaron may carry any sin arising from the holy things that the Israelites consecrate. I bring up these three. Uh, there's a, a couple more parts of the, the garments that he's to wear, as you can see there. I bring up these three because they all contain this word uh, carry. And not just by accident does he carry. It's not just describing how, he, how he's to wear it, but they're all very, very symbolic. Of course, the first two are uh, to symbolize him bringing the people of Israel before God and carrying with him on his, over his heart and on his chest, which are two really good images, honestly, for carrying on, the, chest, on the, the shoulders, I mean, and over his heart, he carries Israel uh, before the Lord. And then also, I, the, I have to include this third one because it's not even a specific item. It says that he will carry any sin arising from the holy things that the Israelites consecrate. So these garments that the Levitical priests are to wear, I think, tell us a lot about their, the priest's function. A priest carries things. He carries things before the Lord. And though these are, are physical uh, symbols of, of what the priest is carrying, he's also carrying these things in a spiritual way as well, of course. A Levitical priest uh, did many, many things. They played many functions. They made sacrifices on behalf of the people. They gave instruction from the Torah, and their words that they instructed from the Torah were, were heeded as if they were coming from God. They were trusted in that sense. And they tended to and they guarded the sanctity of God's temp tabernacle and eventually temple, which contained the Ark of the Covenant. But of all these things, I think the function of the priest can be wrapped up by saying that their role was to be vicarious carriers. Doesn't really ring off the, the tongue that well, but they are vicarious carriers. They vicariously represent humanity, and in their case, the nation of Israel, and all of their sin. They vicariously represent humanity to God in the temple, as well as vicariously representing God to the people in their instruction, in their guidance, in their leading in worship. The priest's work was to carry things and to act vicariously. So a good priest will carry the burden on behalf of another to God. That's the function of a priest. One of the many uh, great um, priestly images in media is a movie that we've referenced a lot called Calvary. And I almost can't say anything uh, without spoiling it, so I won't say much. But for, again, for those with ears to hear, if you've seen the movie, uh, the beginning of the movie, 
this doesn't spoil it, but um, a man comes in confession and tells this priest uh, he, he had been very much hurt um, through abuse from priests in the past. And he says, I'm going I'm to kill you a week from now. I, I'd like you to meet me because I'd like to kill you because killing a bad priest would be, would be boring. I want to kill a good priest. This is how the movie opens. And without, hopefully without spoiling too much, but in that movie, you see this priest, and he's an incredible, incredible pastor to his parish. He's incredible. You just follow him through a week, but you know in the background he's deciding, am I going to meet this guy intentionally? And he has all the opportunities to avoid it. Uh, and by the end of the movie, he, he, he chooses to face this man. I won't tell you what happens, but he chooses to, and he goes into it choosing to just carry the sins of not him, but carry the sins of another. And I just love it because it harkens back to the very first dialogue in the movie. He's called a good priest. You see the whole movie that he's good. He's a very good pastor. He's a very good shepherd. But he never plays a better priestly role than at the end when he carries somebody else's guilt willingly. That's a good priest. At Christmas, the second person of the Trinity steps into his role of priest. He comes as a priest not from the line of Levi, whose priesthoods were limited inherently, uh, at, in that they, they only carried Israel's sins so far as they carried Israel's sins and made sacrifices on behalf of them. We see that they also have to make sacrifices on, for their own sins as they do it. So they're limited in that way. And the Levitical priesthood is also limited in that when they die, their priesthood dies with them. Uh, it's a huge two huge limitations to the, the Levitical priesthood. No, the second person of the Trinity comes as a priest, not, for the line, not from the line of Levi, but from the order of Melchizedek. The author of Hebrews, uh, which is the other uh, place where you see Melchizedek just strung throughout the entire book, the author of Hebrews takes all of this priest imagery from all of the memory of Israel and it uses all of it to point to Christ. If you haven't read Hebrews in a while, just in one sitting, I could have just done that instead of this sermon. It's so great. And all the priest uh, imagery and the explanations that's used there is so good. And the way it all points to Christ is so good. But one, one portion uh, from chapter 7, verse 11 says this. This is kind of um, expanding the whole and explaining this, how Christ is priest. It says, if perfection could have been attained through the Levitical priesthood, and indeed the law given to the people established that priesthood, why was there still need for another priest to come? One in the order of Melchizedek, not in the order of Aaron. For when the priesthood is changed, the law must be changed also. He of whom these things are said belonged to a different tribe, and no one from that tribe has ever served at the altar. For it is clear that our Lord descended from Judah, and in regard to that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. And what we have said is even more clear if another priest, like Melchizedek, appears. One who has become a priest, not on the basis of a regulation as to his ancestry, but on the basis of the power of an indestructible life. For it is declared, and now we're quoting Psalm 110, You are priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. The second person of the Trinity, Jesus, the Son of God, 
steps into his priestly role and takes the imagery of the priestly garments as given in Exodus 28. And he takes them much, much, much further. What was symbolic in Exodus 28 becomes solid at Christmas when our great high priest wears the garment of our flesh. With the incarnation, the second person of the Trinity carries our flesh, our likeness, our names, and our sin before the Lord. All of this is being done in and through the infant Jesus of Christmas. He is beginning an earthly life that will be lived for us vicariously. If you never read anything on the vicarious nature of Jesus, it's a really fun uh, part of theology to read on. Um, someone worth reading is, is T.F. Torrance, a Scottish theologian. But we have a local theologian who has dedicated pretty much his whole academic life to this exact idea of the vicariousness of Jesus. He teaches at, at Friends University. His name is Dr. Chris Kettler. He writes in one of his book this, A vicarious sense of Christ's humanity signifies that Jesus Christ is both the representative of and the substitute for my humanity. He represents my humanity before God the Father, having taken my humanity upon himself, bringing it back to God from the depth of sin and death. He is high priest, representing the people before God. But he is also the sacrifice himself. He is the substitute, doing in my place, in my stead, what I am unable to do. Live a life of perfect faithfulness to, obedience to, and trust in God. Vicarious at his heart means doing something for another in their stead, doing something that they are unable to do. At Christmas, Jesus assumes a high priestly role of which those on earth are merely a sketch or a shadow of. This comes from Hebrews 8. The Lagos, the word of God, clothes himself in our flesh and lives a human life vicariously for all of humanity. He carries our humanity from his birth to the cross, to the resurrection, to his ascension. Jesus continues also this priestly role today at the right hand of the Father. He intercedes on our behalf. He is the priest of our confession. That comes from Hebrews 3. He continues this high priestly role. And to close tonight, uh, just for fun, and more for symmetry than for fun, let's fast forward through Christmas and remember uh, one very priestly moment of many, one very priestly moment in Christ's life. In John chapter 17, Jesus prays a prayer over his disciples that has come to be called Jesus' priestly prayer. If you look at your Bibles, uh, it will likely be named something close to that. Jesus' priestly blessing or priestly prayer. And I, I just really, really love scripture. And this is an amazing example of why. Remember Genesis 14, where Melchizedek comes out into the valley offering Abraham and his men bread, wine, and a blessing. In John 17, Jesus is with his disciples for his last meal with them, and he brings with them bread, wine, and a blessing. 
He consecrates the bread and the wine to be for them and for us today a sacrament, a gift of his presence. And then he prays over them a blessing. And you can go read this blessing. It's beautiful. But in his blessing, Jesus speaks to the Father on behalf of them present. And in his blessing, he, he mentions that though he's going away, he asks the Father to keep them in him and to keep he himself in them. And he goes on to say that though he won't be in the world anymore, he's sending them out into the world. The priesthood that we first see in Melchizedek, that due to humanity's failure gets laicized, gets defrocked down to one tribe, in Christ has now been proclaimed, expanded again, over all of us who house the Spirit of God. We are priests. You know, we're probably familiar with 1 Peter chapter 2. We're the royal priesthood. But we are not Levitical priests, and we're not even Melchizedekian priests, and that's a word, which is pretty cool. No, we are priests in the order of Jesus, and his Spirit makes this possible. We exercise our priesthood with one another a lot more than we probably realize. Here at Wheatland, we act as priests to one another. All of us have probably had seasons in our life when we found we couldn't carry our faith. We couldn't carry it ourselves. We couldn't carry the yoke of Christ. In these seasons, our faith was carried by the church, by one another. We're embodying Galatians uh, chapter 6, I think verse 3, that we bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. We confess, when we confess to one another, when we submit to one another's instruction, which I hope we do, or when we carry each other through times of doubt or of suffering, we are acting as Christ's priests to one another. And the last way that seems really relevant that we are priests to one another is something that Paul has said in other words many times the last few weeks. Our communion time during COVID, many of us are not able to be here. Those present are vicariously receiving the bread for you. They're walking down this aisle vicariously. It's a priestly role. They're doing that, carrying it, for you. I really hope that uh, as we grow in our priestly roles that we can name it, our, our priestly roles in one another's lives. The homework, I like to give the youth homework, the homework I give you is to text someone uh, that you can think of who has done this for you, who has carried you uh, through a time of your life where your faith might not have survived without it. This is the priestly role And of course, Christ is playing it on our behalf every moment. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful to you for the massive miracle that occurs at Christmas. We uh, acknowledge to you tonight just that we, we need this. We need a priest. That we cannot always carry our faith on our own. We ask that you continue to empower your church through your spirit to play that role. We ask that you teach us how to submit to one another.
And we ask that you teach us how to submit firstly to you, our great high priest, who comes to us in the order of Melchizedek and fulfills this role that we so desperately need. We pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. We now uh, enter the part of our service.